Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Julie and I built a laboratory at the University of Washington where 130 newlywed couples just occupied an apartment kind of setting where they could move around very freely. And uh, we studied them for 24 hours. Uh, had the cameras going for 24 hours. Also collecting urine samples. <laughs> we were collecting blood uh, and so on. So it was more detailed physiological measures than what we had done before. We found that the couples who were more physiologically aroused, hearts were beating faster, his blood were flowing faster, and so on, uh, had relationships that deteriorated over time. And that was the basic finding. So the people who were calmer, when they talked to one another and interacted with one another, had relationships that got better and better over time. That's John and Julie Gottman. For decades, they've been studying couples in what they call the love lab. What they've discovered there is helping thousands of other couples strengthen their relationships. And as I discovered in reading their new book, The Love Prescription, even a person that's been in a relationship lasting over 65 years, a person like me, can get better at communicating. This is great to be talking with you both because this this podcast is about communicating and relating and you're stars in the field of relationships. John, the thing that I really love about your work is that you created an environment where you could study relating and relationships and measure what you were studying. Right. And was your first lab in that direction, was that called the Love Lab? Yeah, it was a, a lab that my best friend Bob Levinson uh, and I designed together at Indiana University uh, 50 years ago. And 50 years ago, did you have trouble getting people to sign up to be participate in a love lab? No, not at all. People were quite eager to uh, help us really understand their relationships. So what was it exactly? What was the setting like? Well, there were different settings. In our first lab, we had people just come in after they'd been apart for about eight hours and just talk about how their day went. And... Mm. And then we had them take the major conflict in their relationship, and we asked them to try to resolve that in the next 15 minutes. And then they talked about a positive topic. So they were sitting face-to-face, and there were two cameras merged in a split screen. And we had a computer that synchronized the video time code to physiological measures that we were collecting, heart rate, blood velocity, how much people sweat from their palms of their hand, how much they moved around, respiration. And eventually, uh, Julie and I built a laboratory at the University of Washington where 
130 newlywed couples just occupied an apartment kind of setting where they could move around very freely. And uh, we studied them for 24 hours. I had cameras going for 24 hours. And Julie, was that set up in the same way, measuring their heart rate and that kind of thing? Yes, except um, they had halter monitors uh, that allowed them to move all over the apartment. So they could turn away from each other. They could walk to the other end of the room and so on. So it was a little bit different. Um, we were also collecting urine samples. <laughs> we were collecting blood uh, and so on. So it was more detailed physiological measures than what we had done before. What kind of correspondence did you get between those uh, measurements you were taking and what was going on between the couple? Well, the interesting thing was that when we studied couples over time, we found that the couples who were more physiologically aroused, whose hearts were beating faster, whose blood were flowing faster, and so on, uh, had relationships that deteriorated over time. And that was the basic finding. So the people who were calmer, when they talked to one another and interacted with one another, had relationships that got better and better over time. Let me jump in here. There was another very, very important and difficult to see finding that came out of that apartment lab. When a person made a bid for attention or a bid for connection, how did the other person respond? What would be an example of a bid for attention? Okay, it might be this. Uh, The apartment lab looked over uh, a course of water just beautiful river water. So if one person went to the window and said, wow, look at that beautiful boat, and the other person said nothing, we found, we called that turning away. If the person who was listening was reading a book and said, stop interrupting me, I'm trying to read, we call that turning against. But if the person who was listening went over to the window and said, wow, that was turning towards. Or even grunted. Or grunted. <laughs> mm. yeah. A loving <laughs> grunt. Well, what we found, Alan, this was amazing, is that six years down the road, the couples who were successful six years down the road turned towards each other in those bids for connection, 86% of the time, the couples Mm. who failed to stay close and ended up either separating or being very unhappy only turned towards each other 33% of the time. That was a big finding. What's amazing to me is that putting all of this together analyzing your results, you were able to predict whether a couple would stay together or get divorced or stay together and be happy or not be happy. What was your success rate in that? Because you followed up on these couples. Yeah, our our best prediction was 94% accuracy. And, uh, but we're always, always over 90%, whether it's with a heterosexual couple or a gay and lesbian couple, um, the same set of findings replicated over and over again. I knew it was high. I didn't know it was that high. I was telling my wife, Arlene, 
how you could predict success. And she said, well, we're married 65 years. Find out if we'll stay together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, ac I actually uh, listened to an interview with Arlene uh, this morning uh, about her secrets, you know, for keeping a relationship going. And, you know, she's spot on. You know, her, her intuition is perfect in line with the data we've collected. Her secret for a long marriage is a short memory. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yep. But how do you get to that short memory? That's my question to you. What, what are the secrets? Well, there is a very important secret, actually. When you've had a regrettable incident, right, which this is alluding to, it's very important to talk through each person's perspective on what went wrong in the communication and share mm. their feelings about what happened, their kind of perception of what happened, and anything that may have gotten triggered, i.e. something very deep that started long before this relationship, an earlier uh, pain that started, and bring that up and share that with each other so that each person really understood the impact of the incident on the other person. Then, only then, would each person take responsibility and perhaps apologize for their part in the regrettable incident. And then both people could make a plan for how to avoid an incident like that from happening again. And there are things you've discovered that can deal with the day-to-day -day interactions of a couple, not with regard to a regrettable incident like that that needs, needs a short memory on the other part, the partner's part. But the daily practice of things that seem small, but they seem to add up to be things like the ra the ratio of positive stuff. Yes. Uh, one of the things that Bob Levinson and I discovered very early was that if we just took the number of seconds that people were nice to one another, kind, generous, especially humor, shared humor, uh, and divided that by the number of seconds they were nasty to one another, angry, disappointed, hurt, uh, sad, disgusted with one another, that ratio of positive to negative averaged five, five times as much positive as negative. During conflict. Even during a conflict conversation for mm. the master couples. And it averaged 0.8 for couples who would be unhappily married or break up. And during normal time together, when they weren't discussing a problem or having a conflict, the ratio would be 20 to 1. So a good relationship is a rich climate of people being kind and generous to one another. So, John, I've, I've seen you give a talk where you talked about the four things that lead to disaster. Right. Has your research dug up any more than that, or are you still focused on those four things? Well, what, what Bob and I discovered uh, as we followed couples for as long as 20 years was that the presence of what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling, predicted early divorce, people who had those divorced an average of 5.6 years after the marriage, after the, after mm. the wedding. But there was another group of couples that divorced later, 
16.2 years after the wedding. And those people, they didn't have the negativity. They had the absence of positivity, the lack of interest in one another, the lack of real caring in what the other person's opinion was, the lack of curiosity, the lack of humor and affection. And those people could stay together longer, but eventually it was the absence of that positivity that really destroyed the relationship. Can you tell me about the, the other four in a little more detail? Criticism, for instance. Everybody has something they want to see a little different from the other person. Exactly, exactly. So the masters of relationship, when they complain, they really describe themselves. They're pointing the finger at themselves and saying, I'm really, this, this is what's making me upset. You know, I really need you to put down your cell phone during dinner so we can talk. Don't do your email during dinner so we can talk to each other. So they're really giving their partner a recipe for success and describing their own feelings. Whereas the disasters of relationships are pointing their finger at their partner and saying, the problem in our relationship is you and your personality needs to change. Here's what's wrong with you. And so they're really blaming the partner's personality for all the problems in the relationship. They're saying, as far as I can tell, I'm pretty much perfect, but you are defective. How about defensiveness? What's a good example of that? So defensiveness is really warding off a perceived attack. And people get defensive in two major ways. One is they counterattack and escalate. And the second is they act like an innocent victim and they whine and complain. Some people can actually do both at the same time. <laughs> like an innocent victim and counterattack. I'm not that good yet at it, but I'm, 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 I, hear from, I hear from an expert that I'm pretty good at defensiveness. I, instead of saying, I'm, I'm sorry I did that, I, I often say, oh, the reason that happened was I was, uh, all these things were happening, and, and it, was, like, it wasn't really my fault. You know? Right, right. Yeah, that's the innocent victim approach. And, yeah. And, you know, the, the masters of relationship really respond differently. They really say, that's interesting that you're, you're angry with me or you're upset with me or you think I'm selfish, even when their partner is critical. They say, tell me more. I want to hear about, mm. you know, what you need and you know, what I'm doing wrong. So say more. Disrespect and contempt. That really seems like a recipe for disaster. Can yeah. be. If the other person is completely unwilling to take responsibility for what they are doing to hurt the other partner, and there's no willingness to change whatsoever, then the relationship is really in trouble. Yeah, there, mm. there is a point of no return in many relationships. But, you know, the first 25 years of our research, uh, Bob Levinson and I really were able to predict the future of relationship. But the last 26 years, Julie, who is a very talented clinical psychologist, and I collaborated on seeing if we could prevent relationship disaster or turn a disaster relationship into a master relationship. And the answer is mm -hmm. that we've been able to do the studies they, that are the gold standard in science with randomized clinical trials. And we can really make a difference, not for everybody, but our success rate 
is in the high 70s and low 80s for couples who are really ailing. So what are the principles that can enable somebody, a couple, to prevent a disaster? We found seven principles that really create a strong relationship. The first one we call love maps, which means really asking each other big open-ended questions like, so what are you thinking about the state of the world these days? How would you like to change things in our life together? Asking each other big questions over the course of years, frequently, because all of us change over time, and we need to stay in touch with the internal world of our partner over time. So asking questions in is called love mapping. The second principle is expressing fondness and admiration for each other. It's not enough to think it. You have to either say it in words or you can use touch, gifts, other things, but you need to really convey your love and care all the time towards your partner. The third is turning towards and turning towards is what I described earlier, right. really responding to each other's bids for connection. And then we have conflict management skills as well, and honoring each other's dreams, really knowing what those dreams are and trying to support the other person to fulfill those dreams, and creating shared meaning in your life. And when you talk about asking questions of the other person, it really sounds like you're giving us the advice to have actual curiosity about this other person who we think we know so well. But exactly. a little bit of curiosity can unearth the person that you didn't even know was there, I think. That's exactly right, Alan. And, you know, we, we ask each other a lot of questions in the first courtship time of our relationship to learn who the other person mm. is, whether they're a good match, etc. Uh -huh. But after that, we get busy. We might have kids, careers, interests. We stop asking each other questions. But the reality is we are constantly evolving people. We're changing all the time as we move through time. And thus, our values, our beliefs, our needs are changing, too. And we need to keep up with those in each other by asking questions. When we come back from our break, John and Julie Gottman tell me how their own relationship has benefited from taking their own advice, including how to handle irreconcilable differences. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. 
Hi, this is Anlin Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Julie and John Gottman. So I'm sure that the question has arisen in some listeners' minds by now. How do you two do with your own advice? (laughs) We're on Salt Spring Island, uh, and that's been the scene of our annual honeymoon. For 23 years, we've been coming here and uh, the, to this bed and breakfast, and we ask each other three questions every honeymoon, which is, you know, how how did you feel about last year? What what was awful about last year? What was great about last year? And three, what do you want next year to be like? Right. When our daughter was eight years old, she went away to camp. Well, we decided we needed to go away to camp. So here's where we've been coming. But for 35 years, we've had a fabulous marriage. And I think it's, you know, not bragging. uh, We've been lucky that the research that John has carried out and that I helped with later has really given us the tools. It's not that we had the innate wisdom by a long shot. We lack that. And we've been married before unsuccessfully. Right. <laughs> so we know all the mistakes to make. But as a couple, we have followed the advice of the couples in his research. What do the masters do? Right. And then we try to practice what those masters do. So it has nothing to do with us being special. It has to do with those thousands of couples that really helped us learn what is needed to have a good marriage. Right. What I've seen in your writing is that every couple has problems that are actually unresolvable. Have you had that? And how do you deal with them? If if they never get resolved, aren't they like a porcupine's needles forever? How do you get around that? Let me count all the the problems. <laughs> so we have a lot of differences between us. Right. Um, I tend to be very much an outdoor adventurer, 
And John, we affectionately call an endorseman who puts on his special, you know, clothing to be an endorseman, sits in his red chair and he reads a book. Well, and we recently went on this trip to the Arctic in Norway on a boat and Julie <laughs> kayaked among the icebergs and I, 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 I stayed on the boat and played my banjo. <laughs> So, you know, but speaking of kayaking, one of the ways that we resolved this very big difference between us, because I wanted him initially to do things with me, but there was no friggin' way he was going to (laughs) go into a place that was less than about 65 degrees, right? Right. So we figured out kayaking together was perfect because you could sit first it was very easy, wasn't hard to do. There was no physical exertion. Right. We could talk and we could sing banjo songs while we were kayaking. <laughs> so it was the perfect solution. Exactly. Yeah. So compromise sounds like a, an avenue. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But the most important thing to be able to do, actually, uh, is to have dialogues uh, from time to mm-hmm. time about. Uh, that conflict that you have, but have dialogues which are basically saying, I love everything about you, honey. Mm -hmm. You are the most wonderful human being on the planet, but for God's sakes, would you please change? (laughs) You know, that's what we're saying to each other. Talking about talking makes me wonder. We seem to be going through a very bad time in our culture now. When I see couples who are on opposite sides politically, I, I wonder how they get along at all the way things are so bifurcated now. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Alan. Um, it's very difficult. And what I've seen, their only solution to survive this political climate is to avoid talking about politics at all. And when they want to share something politically, they go to somebody else who understands their point of view Ah, than to each other. Right. So it's not sex they go for, it's politics. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you that as I was reading your stuff yesterday, watching YouTube videos of talks you've both given, By the end of the day, I noticed I was applying almost everything you had talked about in your book and in your lectures. And at the end of the day, Arlene said to me, we had a really great time today. We had a a date. We had a good dinner. We watched a good movie together. And we've talked about interesting things. So thanks for yesterday and all the tomorrows that might come out of it. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. We end every show with seven quick questions. Oh, boy. What do you wish you really understood? I really want to understand the evolution of a great relationship, how it evolves from the very beginning, and how it goes wrong. Fully understand the dynamics of what are happening between two people when they're being very successful and when they're being unsuccessful. 
How about you, Julie? I want to understand what is it that generates hate and how can we change that? How can we convince people that treating each other with kindness and compassion is much more rewarding than hating each other? Okay, next question. John, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I think the way you do it is that you try to listen to their perception of reality, their subjective reality, and try to understand that perception and communicate that understanding. And hopefully they'll be able to reciprocate and listen to your perception. Because all of us really rely on flawed perception and biases. Nobody has an immaculate perception. Good turn of phrase. Julie, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, first of all, I don't make the assumption that I've got the facts right. Uh. So I try to bring some humility to the situation. I also uh, practice what John is describing, which is to really understand and try to validate at least a part of what the other person is saying. And then um, to offer my own point of view as a, I wonder if, maybe, I'm not sure this is correct, it may be wrong, but have you ever thought that this and this and this might be true instead? What are your thoughts about that? And I invite them into considering uh, with a dialogue with me uh, another point of view, just to hear their own thoughts about that as well. John, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? (laughs) Well, when we first started trying to communicate our research findings to the public, uh, reporters would often say, can you summarize everything you found in one sentence? (laughs) And I thought that was such a strange question. And then I realized that it was really a great question. And... You know, and I try to find what is the core finding that really everything is built on. And that strange question became a wonderful question because we found that the core finding is that in a great relationship, people seem to have the motto that when their partner is upset, the world stops and they listen. Uh, And so that uh, strange question became a wonderful question. Yeah, great. Julie, how about you? What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? (laughs) Well, since I'm the clinician, um, people will usually ask me, if you could just say one thing that could completely turn a relationship around, what would that be? And I think my answer to that one, it's Not quite John's answer, though I love his answer. It's honor each other's dreams. Uh. 
Because doing so requires knowledge of your partner's dreams. It requires respect and loving your partner enough to really support them in becoming their best self, which is often what those dreams are about. Great. John, how do you stop a compulsive talker? That that reminds me of my (laughs) (laughs) mother-in-law, who would speak for several days on end. And if My I, poor guy. And if I said anything, she would say, I do not like being interrupted. <laughs> God bless her. Yeah, Defending and, her compulsiveness. Yeah. That's great. So, so how, do, how do you just let her talk for days? <laughs> Usually, uh, she was a small but very formidable person, and I would just let her talk. And... <laughs> That's the advice of a lot of people I ask that question of. Julie, how about you? Do you do you have a technique? Yeah, I've got a totally different answer. Um, so I have a lot of those folks uh, who sit in front of me in therapy. So I will say, can I interrupt you for a moment, please? And they'll keep talking. And I'll say, can I please interrupt you for a second? Uh, George, George. George, let me say something. Can I just say something a minute, George? George, stop. And usually by the end, they'll stop. I remember working with a couple where uh, he was a compulsive talker, and she could hardly get a word in edgewise. And we wound up using, and he agreed to this, a kitchen timer where each of them would have two minutes to speak. And when the timer went off, they would have to stop talking. And that was very effective. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you've never met. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? Ask them about themselves. Julie, how about you? Yeah, the same thing. I mean, in my uh, first marriage, I was married to uh, a guy who went to law school and then became a lawyer and joined a law firm. So I had to go to a lot of cocktail parties with lawyers. I have absolutely zero interest in really knowing about the law, zero. So what I would say, uh, usually, first question was, what drew you to becoming a lawyer? And what about that specific field of law you're in? What do you love about that? So I would ask them questions that drew out feeling about work which people are never asked about. These are the same kinds of questions that you advise couples to ask one another. Very sure. interesting. Mm-hmm. Deep questions. Why are you interested in this? What, mm-hmm. What's going on inside you mm-hmm. with regard to this? Mm-hmm. So it, it handles everything from a lifelong relationship to a dinner party conversation. It's mm-hmm. useful right. in almost every situation. Right. And it sounds like Again, curiosity directed at the other person. Mm-hmm. 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 John, right. what gives you confidence? There's a moment that I had with my mother when I was around seven years old. When my mother and I came back from a market and we were eating green peas together. And they were so delicious. And both of us were eating these green peas and just laughing laughing with one another at how 
delicious the experience was, just enjoying each other's company. And that feeling of joy that we had together is what gives me confidence about everything in the world. Huh. It's a lovely story. How about you, Julie? Hmm. Well, I come from a very different background than John's, so I had no self-confidence until I met him. And to tell you the truth, what has given me the most confidence is looking into your eyes and seeing all the love that's there. Uh -huh. Even when I've been a total schmuck, I've been terrible, <laughs> there's still love in your eyes. It blows my mind, and it makes me feel like you know, even in my worst moments, somehow in the whole wide world, I get to be loved. I and love that you. gives me confidence. I love you so much. <laughs> I love you when the two of you break off into your own love lab. It's great. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Well, my answer is uh, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Hmm. And that is my favorite book in the world, because when you read it aloud, it's music. Is what takes place in one person's mind in 24 hours. And it taught me how amazingly complex just one person is, how there is such a rich spectrum of wonderful things if you can listen and travel in the landscape of another person's mind, how rich your own life could be. And Finnegan's Wake, I keep going back over and over all the different sections of it and reading it aloud. And I'm still amazed at how wonderful humans can be. You make me want to go back and reread it. How about you, Julie? I think uh, the book that really changed my world uh, was the diary of Anne Frank mm. because that book brought to light that even in the worst circumstances where people are surrounded by um, those with deadly intent still one can see the beauty in the world, the beauty in nature, the beauty in truth. And I've found that to be true every time I work with an individual or a couple, that people want to be good, they want to love, they want to change, they want to grow. They really want to become their best selves. Oftentimes, they simply don't know how. And so it's part of my work to join them along the road, not give them answers, but witness their journey together with them so they don't feel so alone on that journey. This has been great. Thank you for not only sharing your ideas, but lending yourselves to this kind of deep portrait of the two of you individually and even more interesting as a couple. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, thank you, Alan. I, I, I love you, and I, <laughs> I have loved you ever since I started watching MASH. 
(laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Likewise, I mean, it feels so wonderful to see your face, even in this little tiny square. And I feel like we could talk about anything at a dinner party. So I'm hoping someday at a dinner party, you'll be sitting next to me. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. John and Julie Gottman are the co-founders of the Gottman Institute which provides live workshops and take-home training materials for couples based on their decades of research. Their new book is The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Greg Burns. He wants you to know he's not the man he was. Who I thought I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and as a child, those are all different people, really. There's no way that you could say that the childhood version of you is the, was the same person that you are today. Your molecules are different, your body's different, your brain is completely different, and yet we have this illusion and almost to the extreme, a delusion that we have always been the same person. Greg Burns is also the neuroscientist who scanned the brains of dogs to find out if they loved their owners. We talk about his insights into both who we think we are and what our best friends think of us. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>